Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Sergeant First Class John Valentine. Welcome to the Veterans Be Real podcast. Here's where we try to keep it real and do our best to help all our fellow veterans out there. This podcast will hopefully open our veterans' eyes into the transition and challenges they are facing and give them some guidance along the way. Please subscribe and download our podcast. We look forward to you, your insight, and your loyalty. Thanks for listening. And now here's Veterans Be Real. Because we are the brave. All you veteran be real listeners, it's Sergeant Be Real. I'm bringing you in here to the Veterans Be Real podcast. Today, we have Christina Rock. I mean, the name alone says a lot. So we're just going to listen to Christine. She's going to tell us our story, story about how her transition from the military went and her little little about her military story and then how she's transitioned now. So Christina, floor is yours. All right. Thank you, Sergeant Be Real. I appreciate that. So my story is kind of unique like everybody else's, I guess, I never wanted to join the military. My dad used to bring recruiters by the house and bring them over for dinner. And didn't I want to join the Navy? I'm seasick. There's no way I was joining the Navy. But did uh, One of my uncles was a Marine Corps officer, retired after 28 years, and he was trying to get me to join the Marine Corps. And I just wasn't, I just didn't want anything to do with it. I just didn't. So I went to college because I wanted to be a criminal profiler for the FBI. And like many small town kids who go to a big city college, I partied my way through my freshman year and they asked me to leave. Oh, um, you're partying, girl. <laughs> 1.75 GPA. <laughs> it was not great. It was not good. You were, you were so, built for the military. Yeah, there you yeah, go. Yeah, right? So they, uh, they actually put me on academic probation, and they told me that I had to improve my GPA. So my sophomore year, there's rumors going around the dorms about a, cl- a really easy class to boost your GPA. Everybody that shows up, as long as you show up, you get an A. And that was Military Science 101. So I thought, yeah, okay, I'll go. I'll check the whatever. So I, like two days after I got my incredibly expensive bill from the school that I had to apply for student loans for because I was essentially funding my education by myself. This recruiter, he was a major. I cannot remember his last name. On good days, I can, but I can't. He was like the nicest dude on the planet. He could sell water to a drowning man. And he stood up in front of the class and he said, let me tell you about ROTC. And it is wonderful. And we'll pay for school. And we'll pay for your books. And we're going to give you a stipend every month so you don't have to work. And I'm over here looking at this $20,000 bill and I'm going, oh my God, I need this. So I approached him afterwards and I said, let me just see like what it is that that this is offering. What what you got for me? And he said, you're going to go to summer camp. I was like, I could do summer camp. That sounds fun. He's like, yeah, you're going to like go repelling and you're going to go camping and you're going to hang out with people. It's going to be great. I'm like, I could totally do that. Yeah, you can. (laughs) So, (laughs) So that was fall of... 90, 99, fall of 99. And so I decided, he said to, he offered me the opportunity to um, kind of do a semester of ROTC to see if that was something that I was, that I fit with. And I actually liked it. I didn't mind doing the PT. I did not like getting up in the morning, but didn't mind going out there and doing PT. I loved our labs, our ROTC labs. Cause like we we're out there like doing infantry tactics. You know, we had our, what is it? 11 seven. Is that what it is? So am I dating myself here? You're dating yourself. Okay. Yeah. So we had, we had that and had it with like little tabs and because I was a nerd and had highlighted little tabs and stuff. We'd be out in the park and we'd be like L-shaped ambush and all kinds of stuff. And I thought it was a great time. I loved it. So that summer I was going to go to summer camp. It was basic training, but it was designed for ROTC scholarship. And so I showed up to Fort Knox, Kentucky that summer. My fiance passed away. 
And oh, seven days after he buried him, I wound up in Fort Knox, Kentucky um, in July, which was, oh no, it was June. It was June. So super hot, really sticky, really gross. Uh, nobody warned me about that. I was not in a good place. His death really kind of impacted me and I was not healthy at all. And I'm really comfortable being able to admit that. And I'm comfortable being able to admit that I was doing things that I should not have been doing as a 19 year old kid. So 18, was I 18? I was 18, 19. Regardless, doesn't matter. So I get there. This is the summer of, this is the summer of 2000. So I get to basic training and it actually saved my life. I remember when I got there, the drill sergeant, they signed us all in. They did not have their brown rounds on. They were very nice. They smiled. They said, oh, hello, Christina. Welcome. Would you like to get on the bus? We have about a two hour drive because this is Louisville, right? We have about a two hour drive to Fort Knox, but or whatever it was an hour drive or whatever it was. So just hang tight and you can listen to your, you know, CD Walkman because we had the disc, discipline at that point. Um, and we'll be there. It'll be great. So I'm like, this is going to be fun. Do you want to call your mom? Go ahead and get a payphone and call your mom. Let her know. I'm like, okay. So off I go, right? Because I'm 19 and dumb. So I call my mom. I'm like, it's really great here. So I get on the bus. And as soon as we pull into the gate, his name was Joel Sergeant Bankston. And I remember him for the rest of my life. Never forget. He stood up and he put that brown round on and it was like a whole different human being. And I actually raised my hand. I said, I think I'm on the wrong bus. I was not on the wrong bus. So we get off the bus. I go through eight weeks of basic training. It was the single best experience of my entire life. It was awful, of course, because it was Fort Knox, Kentucky in the summer and it was hot and sweaty and gross. And we were constantly getting yelled at. We were doing front back goes on blacktop, but it saved my life. So at the end of it, uh, I was offered the opportunity to join ROTC as an officer to get a scholarship to pay for the rest of my education. But I had to enlist in the reserves as a private. So graduated basic training, I signed my name on the dotted line, raised my right hand, did all those good things. And I was private rock for a couple of years before I graduated. And then I became Lieutenant rock, like magically overnight. Interestingly enough, when I was at the captain's career course, I saw one of my drill sergeants from basic training, drill sergeant Harp. He walked down the hallway and like, it was like instinct. I went to parade rest. And one of my buddies looked at me and he's like, what are you doing? I was like, that's my drill sergeant. He's like, you outrank him. It's okay. And I was like, okay. And it took me a minute. Yeah. It was, it's like that whole thing just comes flooding back to you. So I graduated college in 2002, um, went on active duty January of 2003. So shortly before nine, shortly after 9-11 happened, they offered us the opportunity to sign off and basically say, no, I don't want to continue on active duty. I'd like to basically pull back my, my commission. I don't want a commission. I don't want to join the military. I'll just hang tight as a civilian. We would have had to pay back our scholarship, but I knew in that moment, like as 9-11 was happening, I was like, this is why I signed up. This is what I'm going to go do. I can go do that. So January of 2003, I was on active duty. I spent 10 months, I spent six months, I'm sorry, as a recruiter because they had so many people going through the, the basic course that they didn't have enough courses and enough slots open at that time because 9-11 had happened and we were in Afghanistan and we were gearing up to get ready to go to Iraq. So I had to wait a little bit for my school slot. So went to school. So I did recruiting for six months out of McDill Air Force Base in Tampa. Then I went to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, because I was a chemical officer. I swear to God, I picked the crappiest places to go in the summertime. Um, so I was there from May until October-ish of 2003, um, got to my unit in Hawaii, Schofield Barracks, and I was upset that I was going there, believe it or not, because I had asked for Korea, Fort Carson, Fort Bragg, Fort Campbell, 
Fort Still, I think, was on the list. Italy was on the list. Hawaii was like the very last one. So anyway, so I get there. They weren't deploying. And then magically overnight, we had deployment orders. So I found myself in Baghdad, Iraq in January of 2004. We were there until July-ish of 2004. We moved up to Taji, where we spent the rest of our deployment until January of 2005, when most of my unit came home. My DD-214 says I spent eight years, 10 months, and two days on active duty, but roughly start to finish, it was about 10, 11 years from the time I signed in October of 2000 to the time I separated in November of 2011. I chose to separate for a variety of different reasons, not the least of which is the Army stopped loving me, and I stopped loving it. And I was a firm believer, and I still am, in that if you are going to do a job like serve in our nation's military, you have to love it. You have to. You have to make hard decisions. You have to do hard things. You have to make hard sacrifices for your family. Your family has to make hard sacrifices on your behalf. And if you don't love it, you're putting yourself at risk and you're putting your battle buddy at risk. And I knew that. And I did not want to be a staff weenie for the rest of my career. So my name went in for the major's board and I said, nope, no, thank you. I called up my branch manager and I said, I think it's time for me to go. There's a couple things that led up to that. First of which my significant other had received orders to PCS to Fort Bliss. So I called up my branch manager and I said, hey, my dwell time at Fort Lewis is up. Like, I'm ready to go. Can I go to Fort Bliss? And he laughed and he said, you told me you'd chop me up and feed me to my kids if I ever cut you orders to Bliss. And I was like, I will put it in writing. I will like to go to Bliss, please. And he said, I can send you to Fort BCT. They're deploying. Are you okay with that? I'm totally fine with that. Just get, I just wanted to be in the same location. And then the branch chief, a lieutenant colonel, found out that I was trying to PCS to be with him. And because we were not part of the Married Army Couples Program, because we were not married, she rescinded my orders so that I could deploy on post at Fort Lewis with a brigade that was leaving in nine months. So the concept of spending another two years away from my boyfriend was just not something I was comfortable with. And when I called her up, she was like, we all got to do our time, sweetheart. And that, I think, was the pivotal moment where I was like, this just isn't for me anymore. I was so angry that just because we had to get married in order for us to be together. That to me was just ridiculous. And my branch manager was willing to work with me. My unit was willing to lose me. This other unit wanted to gain me. I had combat experience. Like, so anyways, so I made the very difficult decision to get out. There were lots of tears cried over it. There was lots of anger. There was lots of, but I can make this work. I want to make this work. Let me see if I can make this work. And I actually had one of my soldiers, he had kind of overheard a conversation. We had cubicles where I was working at the time and he kind of overheard a conversation. And he came up to me and he said, now, I wasn't like overhearing you, but I was kind of overhearing you. And he said, if you don't love this, don't do this. And I was like, no, but I'm going to make it work. And he's like, we don't want you to lead us. And I like realized that that was the most legit thing that I had ever heard. And here was this, so we, you know, we, I think we kind of looked down at the E4 mafia, but they have more, have more experience and knowledge, I think, than most people. Um, and here was this little E4 telling me just cut slang and go. And, and I realized, you know, maybe that was what I needed to do. So um, I had a real hard conversation with myself. I had a real hard conversation with my therapist at the time who was completely useless. I had a real hard conversation with my boyfriend and made the decision that I was going to separate. Um, I submitted my resignation packet and it was denied seven times before it was done. So I am nothing if not an example of perseverance. And I remember going through that process. I was going to school at the time to get my master's degree. So I had my bachelor's degree from prior to serving. And then what would have been, and I didn't know at the time, my last deployment, um, I was a battle captain for a sustainment brigade and we were in Kuwait. So we were the push and pull for everything coming in and out of Iraq and Afghanistan. So when we're busy, we're busy. When we're not busy, we're really not busy. And there's only so much farm bill that you can do before like you realize you need another hobby. So we decided that, or I decided that I was going to go back to school. So I was in school on an online program, getting my master's degree in forensic psychology from Walden University. I think that's actually the one. It is. And I loved it. I loved it. 
It was, let's climb inside people's brains and let's slap a diagnosis on them. We don't have to treat it. And that's not what I wanted to do. I did not want to be a therapist. I thought therapy was listening to a depressed housewife tell you why yellow makes me sad. I had horrible experiences with my therapist, wanted nothing to do with them. So fell in love with this program. I was going through the internship process towards the tail end when I made the decision to get out. It was right before I got out or made the decision that I started my internship. And I realized I liked it. It was in a correctional facility. I loved the kind of paramilitary structure of it. I liked that everything was scheduled, that there was sirs and ma'ams and yes, sir, no, sir. And there was a lot of respect the officers gave the inmates, the inmates gave the officers when they wanted and the officers gave staff. Like it just, it felt homey to me. It felt comfortable to me because of my experience in the military. So I decided that I was going to get out and I was going to look for jobs. I'd completed my master's degree at that point. And then I was going to start looking for jobs in the civilian sector as a working in the correctional field in some capacity. So there happened to be a job Job. Uh, it was in Las Cruces. I don't know how much geography you guys know, but Las Cruces is, well, my job was 54 miles away from the house that we lived in by Fort Bliss. But they accepted me. They hired me so I could drive the 45, 50 miles an hour-ish. The speed limit on the highway was 75, so it didn't take me 54 minutes to get there. Yeah, yeah, or 90, depending if there's no cop, you know. So, so I, it gave me kind of this, like, this warm fuzzy of hope that, okay, I had a job, to, I had a job when I left. And the prison was really good about, okay, we don't know when you're going to separate because my packet kept getting denied. We don't know when you're going to resign. We don't know when you're going to be able to come down here. We'll kind of hold the job for you depending on how long this is going to take. So I went through kind of this crisis. And I remember I was packing to fly down there to go on the job interview. And I was living with a friend at the time. And I am snot bubble crying, like hiccup, snot bubble, like epic tears, like, like the world is ending because I didn't know what kind of shoes to wear, because what kind of shoes do civilians wear? I didn't know. I lived in Hawaii for most of my career. Flip-flops, that's the answer to everything. You're gonna go on a date, flip-flops. You're gonna go to a ball, probably flip-flops. Like flip-flops was the answer. Slippers is what they call them. So I am like hiccup crying in my room because I didn't know what shoes were appropriate to wear to a civilian interview for like a real civilian job. And this was the first grown-up job I will have I would have ever had in my entire life. And my roommate, who was also military, came in and said, I don't know what to help you with, wear shoes that go. Like she had no idea either. And the two of us are like trying to figure this out. And I remember thinking, I can't do this. This isn't going to work. And I don't know what I'm doing. And what does one even wear? And I'm Googling like interview outfits for prisons. And that was not helpful, by the way. Uh, don't Google anything in prison because it will come up with a bunch of stuff you don't want in your house. Interesting, interesting Google. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting search for sure. And so I kind of winged it. And I remember multiple calls with my boyfriend where I was like, I don't know what to wear. And, you know, of course he was like, you know, he's career military. He's like, I don't know, honey, whatever looks good. You know, he didn't care. So I just, I just remember having so much anxiety about something as stupid as what kind of shoes do I wear? which seemed really silly to me at the time because I had made life or death decisions. I had made decisions as to whether or not to launch aircraft to attack a target. And now here I am panicking over what kind of shoes do I wear in this interview? And it was, it's a very different, it's a very different culture shift or schema shift. And so I don't even remember what shoes I wore. I think they were flats, irrelevant. I got the job, which totally shocked and surprised me. I was like, I'm sorry, what, you're going to hire me? With these shoes, you're going to hire me? <laughs> exactly. Which added a whole other level of anxiety because now what do I wear to this job? And I was thankful in that the prison had some limitations. So no skirts above the knee for females, no low cut tops, like pretty standard stuff that you don't want your boobs and ass showing. Sorry, can I say ass on here? I'm sorry. Yes, no. Yeah. We're military right. people. We're used to that. The family show. I got it. Although not so much family. No, okay, so good. <laughs> so don't show boobs and ass and you'll be fine. 
Yeah, pretty much. Um, that's cool. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I, I felt a little more comfortable with that, but it was still, I just remember like every morning, the first day, same snot bubble cry. Like what do I wear for my first day on the job? And I want to look professional and I'm giving therapy to inmates. I don't even like giving therapy, but I kind of decided that it was an interesting internship where I realized that if like you had, if you weren't a depressed housewife telling me why yellow makes you sad, if you had like real life stuff, real trauma stuff, I'll work with you all day long. But if you're like, oh yeah, I'm depressed and I don't know why I struggle with that. There are therapists out there that do that and they're fantastic at it. That's just not for me. So I was able in this job to kind of hone my skills, but still kind of struggled with who I was as a civilian. And I was in therapy when I left the VA. So here's what I will tell anybody who is separating. And I don't know if it's the same now as it was nine years ago when I left, but make sure that you keep copies of your own medical records because the VA has a habit of losing them. Make sure that you write down every little possible thing that could ever have possibly maybe theoretically happened to you when you were on active service because you don't know what they're going to take and what they're not going to take. And you're going to go through competent evaluations anyways. And so I remember like two full days of wandering around the El Paso VA. The, The staff there was great. It is not that way. VA to VA, which I am finding out, but I really struggled with the kind of personal identity. I was always this soldier. I was always an officer. I got out as a captain. Um, I was always Captain Rock or I was Lieutenant Rock, Private Rock for like a hot second, but you have this identity. Your name is on your shirt. The stuff that you do is on your shirt. You look like everybody else. You're part of a team. You don't have to get up in the morning and wonder about, oh gosh, what am I going to wear today? How will I do my hair? What kind of jewelry will I put on? Because that's already taught to you. That's told to you. And it's this way and you do this. And so I really struggled with that kind of external shell piece of like where I fit. And I think, I don't know if men go through it, but all the female veterans that I've spoken with, we all have across the board have struggled with the, okay, now what do I wear? Yeah, I don't know if we go to that level, but I know like my first job, I got lucky. My first job, I was a drill instructor at Juvenile Detention Center. So I wore a uniform and a drill sergeant hat. But the next job, I was working for a hospital as a military liaison. So I was like suit and tie, shirt and tie, collar. What type of shoes? Hey, babe, do I wear this kind of shoe or this kind of shoe? Do I wear? See, you have a shoe problem too. We all do because, like you said, we're it's ingrained in us. We didn't have to worry about those. Are simple things we did. We got up, we got in PTs, we went to PT, we got back, we showered, we got in our uniform, went to work. Yep. You didn't have that complicated life where you had to worry about do I have enough of my clothes hanging up? Do I have enough? Right. That's it. PTs and the uniform. That's all you wore to work. That is it. There's only two options: PTs or uniform. So and boots. Or sneakers. I mean, it was because you didn't have that. I didn't. I don't even think I owned a pair of leather shoes until I got out of the army. Like I had, <laughs> I had sneakers. I had flip flops because I I grew up in Hawaii as a kid. My dad was in the navy, and then I was stationed in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. I didn't even wear shoes until I think I was like nine. Yeah, because like you didn't have to wear shoes as a kid in Hawaii. But anyway, yeah. So yeah, I think all of us go through it. I think not. To, I mean, of course, you ladies have a little bit more challenge because there's a different stereotype for women versus men as far as work. Like me, I had to worry about really. Do I wear a suit and tie? Or do I wear a shirt and tie? Or do I not wear a tie at all? You had to worry about makeup, shoes, jewelry, Hair, for jewelry. The feminine appearance. You had to worry about a feminine appearance. Whereas in the army, you didn't have to worry about a feminine appearance. Just yeah. hair goes up, bun it yeah. up, shoot, yeah. you're booming. Same thing that Zarb is wearing, I'm wearing. So we're good. Yeah. Lieutenant exactly. or Sergeant, we all wear the same face. So, you know, I think thing. all of us go through that challenge when we get out. I think we overlook that simplistic thing of how difficult that can be for us yeah. because we were so adept to. Wake up in the morning, PTs, get back, shower, ACU, BDUs, whatever, yep. go to work. And you get home, you strip down t-shirt, shorts, and you're chilling because you're yep. you're probably not getting home till six, whatever. And then exactly. yeah, t-shirt, jeans, whatever. You're not worried about maybe that high-end level. I mean, like my wife, we go out to dinner, but 
I had a few nice things when I was in the military as far as clothes because I did take my wife out. And I'm sure your boyfriend took you guys out did things, but not for a job. So you weren't mentally preparing yourself for oh. what you need to look for. So yeah, I think it's a perfect, I mean, to be honest, Christine, that's probably the most simplistic, perfect example of how difficult yeah. it can be for us. It is. Because you, it is. you're having a stop ball where I'm crying about shoes and I'm thinking to myself, shit, I thought the same way. Like when I went to that first job at the hospital, I was like, damn, what do I wear today? Because mm-hmm. I didn't, when I even when that first, my first job was literally, I was in the same exact uniform. It just yeah. didn't say Army. It said Williamson County. I had my name, my badges, my tabs, my patches. Yeah. I wore a drill sergeant hat. Yep. I got to go to work and say stuff I wore when I was in just a different, instead of saying U.S. Army, it said yeah. Williamson County. Exactly. And that was it. Still had my name and all this. So, yeah, I can definitely relate. And I think all of us can relate to that at some level because none of us are really mentally prepared for no. what they expect me to wear to work because I'm usually told what to wear. or Exactly. And now I'm not. So, yeah, I, I can relate yeah. big time, yeah. And nobody tells you, you know, I went through the whole tap process. I don't know what it's called now. It's called something different now, but I went through the whole separation process. I went through every class. I did the resume building. I did the medical one. I did the job hunt one. Like I kind of already had a job, but whatever. Like I I did all of that stuff because I was hoping that at some point in that process, somebody would, exactly. Somebody would hand me like the magic solution to why I felt like this was such a wrong. Here's the book you need. Take this with you. Exactly. And and I would have read it. I've had previous podcasts and we talked about that too. It's like at taps and all the stuff when you're doing, you're getting out. It's basically a check the block thing. Like every other military thing we did, it was like pre-screening before we deployed and post-screening. Mm-hmm. Check, check, check. All right, here's my sheet, Sarge. And I'm yep. out. Same yep. thing. We're getting out of the army. I was here at Fort Hood. Go through the Copeland building, go to the different levels, get all the, go to CIF, turn it in, bring the paperwork back. Okay, you're out, Sergeant V. Have a nice life. All right, yep. later. Here's your flag. Right, here's your stuff. Here's your DDT-14. Bye. And I'm yep. like, wait, what? That's it? There's That's no it? Yeah. Yeah, but no one, no one, and that's the reason why I started, wanted to start this podcast, because no one really prepares you for the, the very basic, simple things that can really impact your life. Because like you said, you were literally crying because you were so worried about, and I know I had anxiety. My anxiety level was through the roof. Like, what do I do? I don't want to show up to work yeah. looking wrong. Yep. So yep. it wasn't like yeah, I got to yeah. go to work like what interview clothes, but do I wear interview clothes? When I mean, that guy was wearing a shirt and tie. That guy was wearing a shirt and tie. Maybe I should wear a shirt and tie. So yep. yeah, I completely get it because the army and that's, I just had a conversation about this too. Or, the army doesn't do a very, the military, I shouldn't say just the army, all the branches, they don't prepare you to get out like they prepare you to come in. Correct. Like, I honestly believe there should be an eight-week boot camp on the way out. Yes. That they have civilian, contract, they have executive level people come in, they have basic mm-hmm. level people come in and business owners come in and have to brief you about what you need to expect. Yep. Why can't they do that? Say the last eight weeks you're in the army, you're going we'll do through this. That. So we can prepare you to be the great civilian you were as a great soldier, blah, blah, blah. Right. But right. I don't think we put the resources into where, because the army's like, we're, if you're cutting sleep loan on us, like you left. Yeah. I retired. See, I retired. I did the whole 20 and retired. I was just because I was one of those guys who loved the army and loved, you know, my dad was 20 years. I was different. But my point is no matter when you get out, there's not enough resources put in to prepare you to be successful when you get out. They spent millions and millions of dollars preparing us to be successful while we're soldiers. Yep. And to do our jobs as soldiers and provide and fight wars. But when you get out, they're just kind of like, bye, cut sling load, cut sling load and go. And yep. you're like, but wait a minute, I'm not prepared to get out right. and be a civilian because you haven't taught me. You've right. been teaching me every day for 20 years. Now you're not teaching me anymore. What? What? Yep. So yep. that's a big reason why you're here, why I'm here, and I'm doing this. Is so we, it's just that simple, guys. Listen, what Christina just said about the clothes, that is legit. That is real. It's you're going to so go legit. through anxiety. Even if you work at Walmart, you're going to be like, 
Am I supposed yep. to wear jeans or am I supposed to what, wear what? What do I wear? Yeah, what kind of shoes they, are they going to give me? That little, are they going to give me the jacket? Was I supposed to buy? Was I supposed to buy the Brogar vest? Or are they going to give it to me? So you're yes. going to go through that because you're just not sure because right. it's not your routine. You don't get up yep. at 5:30, get ready for PT at PT by 6:30. That that routine is gone. It's so gone. and like you, because you were an officer, so you had a, even on the, the same level, you had a different expectation of what an officer's job is versus the senior NCO or NCO or soldier. So. It's so complex, but then it's so simple because it's just yeah. like you said, what do I wear? Where do I go? Like, right. do I just park and show? Do I walk? Do I got a clock in? Is there a punch card? Is it, so there's all these questions you got to learn when you first get to the job. And it's, mm-hmm. it's scary. It's almost it it's almost overwhelming to the point it where was. you have a, a significant physical reaction to it. So, yeah, I can definitely relate, Christina, that that is a real thing that, that we know. I know for a fact. Soldiers getting out are not going to be prepared for that because it's just not yep. the last thing on their mind, but it's the first thing that's going to hit your mind when you start your new job. Yeah. Yep. Last thing on your mind, but then the first thing that's going to hit your mind when you're like, wait, what do I wear to work? Yeah. That night before your first job, you're going to be laying in bed like I was going, do I have enough clothes? Are they the right thing? What am I doing? You know? Exactly. Exactly. I got one pair of shoes. I got one. <laughs> and they're gray. I got to get black or brown or whatever. So exactly. yeah, I mean, I. Yep. It's crazy, but it, it's real. So you guys out there listening, she's talking real here because that's anxiety for, I don't care what gender you are, what, what yep. that is an anxiety you're going to feel because you are so accustomed to one way and now it's a different way. And it's a different way every single day. In the Army, it was the same way, Monday through Friday, the same routine. And if you mm-hmm. had CQ on Saturday, then same routine. Yep. This job, every Monday, Tuesday, it's all different. You got to wear different clothes. You can't wear the same thing every day. Nope. People think you're not doing your hygiene or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. People will be wondering why you're wearing the same shirt two days in a row. Why are you wearing Saturday. the same shirt every day, John? Uh, it's the only shirt I got. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Please don't buy five shirts in the same color because people will yeah. ask. <laughs> <laughs> Be ready. Yeah. Go, go get five different plaid, different shirts, different colors, different colors, different colors, different patterns. Yep. Yep. But what she's talking about, guys, is real because it, it's, and I'm so glad she brought it. It's so simplistic, but it's so detrimentally important to you to understand that the expectations of you as a civilian are different than of you as a soldier. Yes. Or sailor or whatever you were in the military. Yep. Because all of us in every branch did the same thing. We got up to PT or whatever your little thing was routine in the morning. Then when you went to work at nine o'clock or whatever time, everybody was in uniform. Might have been a different uniform because I know like the Navy goes through phases where they wear whites and blues and khakis and but they all know when that thing changes. They all know when they're going to go from whites to khakis and da, 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 or the Marines. So it's I mean, Christy, that's legit because that's yeah. as simple as it gets, but it's very stressful. Yeah. Right? And it was something yeah. that you don't even think about. Like, who thinks about freaking out about what shoes they're going to wear, except when it happens and then you're there going, oh, my gosh. Right. You don't even think about it when you're getting out. Like, I didn't go look at my closet and go, do I have enough clothes for a civilian job? Nope. Because you're like, nope. you're worried about getting a job. So you're putting your resume yep. on your but you're not even thinking like, do I even have clothes for that job? If I get that job and I'm yep. making eighty thousand, do I have a suit tie anywhere? I mean, do I? Right. You don't right. think that until it's on you. So that's why I'm doing this podcast so people like us yep. can talk about that. So they go, oh crap, I didn't even think about that. Boom. Yeah. So, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. And it's yeah. interesting because the place that I was working at before I opened this practice, I had a there was a, a student there, an intern. He's still there right now. He's a marine, and he looked very uncomfortable in what he was wearing. So, you know, he had the wingtip shoes, he had pressed slacks, he had a pressed shirt with a tie, you know, the whole bit. And I remember I was observing one of his sessions and he kept pulling at his neck and like moving his neck around. Right. And so at the end of it, I said, you hate what you're, so the client already left. I said, you hate what you're wearing. And he's like, what are you talking about? No, you hate what you're wearing. You're wildly uncomfortable in it. And he was like, well, I mean, 
how did you know? Cause I observe behavior. That's what I do as a living, but like, this is what I'm looking at. Right. And, and so he, so he kind of shared with me, he's like, well, I don't know how to dress. Okay. That's fair. Let's have a conversation about that. And he had a the similar experience, which made me kind of realize that men, you guys go through it too. I don't think necessarily to the level that we do as females, simply because we have more options. There's more part of you as a female. And there's a lot about the visual part of it. Yes. Do I look professional? Do I look pretty? Do I look guys are like, they got a shirt and tie. Yeah, yeah. We're uncomfortable, but the shirt and tie is a basic for us. You don't have, right. you really don't, women don't really have a basic. No. A man has a basic shirt and tie and we're, we'll be okay, basically. Yep. You can get no, away we do it. not. You guys we don't. Do and it's just, nope. that's the challenge of being a female. That's why I love having female veterans on the show too, because there's so many other extra challenges you guys got to go through versus what a man has to go through. That yep. It's important that the ladies out there that are separated here, that there's going to be a few extra steps you got to learn. So like your ACAP yep. is actually ACAP plus, plus, plus versus <laughs> the male ACAP because you've yes. got a few more things to think about because- yes. It's legit. Yeah. On top of the pressure of all the other stuff that could come in this event, the sexual harassment stuff, that what all the other stuff that could accumulate to come on. Yep. Not that the military doesn't have those problems, because believe me, I know I was a sharps guy, so I know. But there's just so many other challenges for a young lady getting out, especially mm-hmm. if they were young. Like you got out after you did a little bit of time. But there's yeah. some ladies like I know. I have a lot of soldiers. I run a nonprofit. And I get a lot of female soldiers that come in that got separated from service because of pregnancy. They only might have did a year, a half a year, six months, even some of them. Because they got yep. pregnant right out of basic training or right during basic. And then they aren't they, they took the, the pregnancy out and they didn't even serve really, really long time, but they're veterans. But and then they just kind of got separated. Now yeah. a lot of them were young, so they kind of went back to what they were before they came in, which is it could save you, I guess, because then there's not a lot of discomfort. They didn't have a lot of learning a different way to live. But but that young lady that got out after five or six years and got pregnant or five or six years and just separated. I feel for ladies out there, because I, I, I'm a big proponent of our brother and sisterhood. Like, I consider every female veteran a sister to me. Like, I owe you that. Like, I owe you that much because of what we went through, what potentially we could all went through together. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of female soldiers that worked for me because being in the medical field, I had female soldiers around me, not like and all that. But And I believed in their abilities. And I, you know what I'm saying? So it's a very important thing to me that female veterans out there understand that there are a lot of organizations out there that'll help you. There's a lot of people out there that'll help you. But there's a lot of brothers and sisters that'll still help you if you reach out. So be prepared for the challenges you're going to run into because it could be a little bit harder. I think for, I think it's harder for a female soldier to separate than it is for a male. because I'm And not from the sexist point of view, but just because I think there's so many desperate challenges as a woman in the workplace. You know what I mean? You're mm-hmm. not necessarily going to get out and get offered the same job I would. If me right. and you were both E7s, we both did the same exact job in the Army. We both get out and we both apply for the same exact job. Let's just be honest. Yep. Probably eight times out of 10, eight times out of 10, I'm going to get a better look than you do. It's not because I deserve it. It's just because I'm a man. Right. And I feel that that's a detrimental thing in our country that we got to get over and we're all working towards that, hopefully. But I think for a female veteran, it's, it's not that it's unfair in the sense that it's not, because I know there's a lot of female NCOs that got out when I got out, that were just as, just as qualified at things I was doing. And they were struggling for years. And I used to have them reach out to me. Hey, sorry, what do I do, John? I said, look, you got to keep plugging. You need, I'll write a recommendation for maybe getting more recommendation, maybe getting more men to do recommendations for might help you. So, and then I did, I got three of my friends to write recommendations for one of my old soldiers. And then she ended up getting a job because, and I don't know if it was directly from that, but I got a feeling that helped push that over the top that Mm -hmm. we wrote up like what she did in the military, how she was that person. We could count on her for everything. And she she wouldn't fail you. And I think get, but that's the sad part about it. And that's why I tell these female veterans to get out. You have a bigger challenge than I did or that most males do because you're a woman. And unfortunately, our society still looks at you different. Yes. And it's not that it's necessarily, a, it's a negative thing in, in my opinion, but I don't think they're doing it on purpose. I think it's just the natural way, attritional way the world works or where our society is. It's just right. like if you're a different color or you're a different religion or you're, 
everybody finds differences in people. And if they're different, they don't want to get it close to you until they figure out that you're not that different. You're just looking right. at it for you. Right. So there's all those, and you know, as a mental health person, those are the challenges we encompass on a day-to-day lifestyle thing. But yep. for a veteran who should be treated that way, it should be treated, should not be because it's, it's just really hard for me to understand that. But yep. your story is perfect because I mean, sitting there crying and bubbly, snot bubble, just because of your shoes. Yep. See, that's what I'm talking about. That's the side of a female veteran that as a male veteran, I wouldn't see that. I would never start crying over it. I was worried about it. But see, I don't have that expectation to be worried about it like you do. Because they're expecting you to look a certain way when you show up. Even though yeah. that's not part of the job, they want that because that's why they hired you. Because I don't care what nobody says. When you hire a female, there's other reasons you're bringing her on, not for just her, her skill set. There's other reasons you bring people on because you want your business to look better. You want that to be the face of your business, whatever, whatever the right. reason. Right. There's always an underlying reason why people get hired no matter what. point is, you ladies have it tough. And I don't mean it in a negative way, but I mean, you got to work a little harder. You got to dig a little deeper. You got to push a little harder. And yeah. I respect the hell out of it myself. I mean, me personally, I know a lot of female veterans that are very successful in their life and they're very successful because they got that military part. They just don't give a shit. They're just going to keep pushing yep. forward. They're going to win the battle no matter what, because they're going to win the yep. war. Yep. And that's what exactly. I respect most about female veterans. So that's it's amazing. But yeah. But I also think that's a detriment to us as well. And that was the other oh, piece that I found right. when I got out was in correctional facilities, there's a certain, I mean, it's paramilitary, right? You're, it's very much that culture. I was respected more than my civilian counterparts because I got the culture. So I'm not saying, you know, when you get out, go join a correctional facility or the or police force or fire department or whatever, but there's definitely that level of respect that I think military veterans, first responders, we all have towards one another because we're not the same, but we're very similar in the way that we work and, and the structure that we have. Same for me because I, I worked at a juvenile detention center, same thing. It was, it was a correctional facility just for yeah. kids, young yeah. adults. And the same thing. We got respect from the kids that were in there as the drill sergeants because we were military. The civilian counterparts we had in there, they would back talk to them, they would, but they wouldn't back talk to us. So yep. if I walked in the room, they were doing something, they would stop. Oh, sorry, yep. They yep. stop. And the civilians were like, thanks for coming in because you're a guy I control. I said, well, look, man, you got to show them, you have to show me of authority. You can't yep. say so, yeah. But I would also say this for veterans that are getting out, getting into one of those type of professions isn't a bad thing when you first get out because you'll learn the civilian side of it, but you'll deem so much respect because of your service time. And because like you said, it's a structured business type of concept, meaning yeah. it's like a man, there's respect, especially mm-hmm. in a prison, because if those inmates mistreat you, they get, there's penalties for that. Yep. And if staff mistreats you, there's penalties for those things. So the expectation is different because I have a lot of buddies that got out, went in the police department or the sheriff's department or whatever. And they're, they were happy because it was still kind of that, there was sergeant rank. There was still structure that yep. gave them comfort. And I think, yeah. and that, and, but I agree with you too in another sense that that's something we should probably try to avoid from a certain standpoint because there's a comfort zone and you're not, you're staying inside your comfort zone. You're not going outside your comfort zone to make yourself have the opportunity to be really as successful as you could be right. by taking the risks that you're going to have to take because right. you went to something that was easy and comfortable and not something that's going to challenge you. Right. So. I caution some, some people, like I'm a big guy about the introvert expert kind of attitude, like an introvert, maybe that is a better job to get into because they need some more time to kind of reallocate themselves in some things like whereas an extrovert can say, Hey, screw it. I'll take a chance and I'll risk it and I'll go and I'll get in front of whatever. Right. So there's a challenge from that per A type personality, B type, or however you want to verbiage it. But all of it, I think is the challenge for all of us as veterans. 
Mm-hmm. You ladies yeah. just gotta go through a little bit more shit than we do, and that's that's just any part of the under, that's like the underlying rule. You had to put up with more shit in the army, and you got to put up with more shit in the civilian side. So. And I noticed too that there was this expectation that I should be softer. I remember same drill sergeant that was on the bus when we were coming onto Fort Knox. He sat down with all of us ladies, and he said basically for two hours, was telling us like, "You are entering a shark tank. Essentially, you are women. You are in a men's military. This is not a sexist conversation. This is a realistic conversation." And it was probably the realest talk that I ever had in my entire life about what I was getting into. And he said, you have three options. You can be a bitch, you can be a dyke, or you can be a slut. Pick one and roll with it. And I was like, that's not true. It's true. So I chose the bitch route because yeah. I- Go bitch. That's what I call it. Go bitch. Because you, you can divert from that later if you need to. Exactly. So I did. And I was never rude and I was never cruel to my soldiers. And I always took care of them. And I believed in, you are not successful as a leader if your subordinates are not successful. So how can I as a leader support you? And I noticed when I got out that that approach of me just being very blunt and upfront and like, look, this is the way it's, this is what's going on. Hands down. Here we are, bottom line up front. And civilians didn't like that because I'm a woman and I should be softer. And And I really struggled with that. And especially going into the therapy field, I even to this day, I mean, I've been out for since 2011. So what's that, nine years now almost. To this day, I just finished up with a week-long training and I'm sitting in this training going, I am meaner than all of the women in here. Like everybody's like love and hugs to everyone. And I'm over here like, can we shoot whiskey? Like what is happening? So different. It is so different. And I think in part the career field that I chose, but I don't ever think that being a therapist, I chose it. I think it chose me. I think that I stumbled into it. And there is an article that I read about a year ago and I, I was looking for it actually before this so that I could talk about it. I will try to find it and I will email it to you. But it is a veteran who talks about this life-death life cycle. And one of the biggest problems that he noted, and I'm bawling as I'm reading this article because it was my life completely. You have this life, right? You sign up for basic training. It doesn't matter how long you're in, but you have this life. You have this purpose. You have this drive. You're up. You're wearing a uniform. You're battle buddies to your right and to your left. You're part of a team. You're part of a men. Whether you deploy or not, you're part of this like forward moving machine. And when you make the choice to separate, there's a death and there's a death to that portion of your life because that's not part of your life. I was fortunate in that my spouse stayed on active duty. And so I was able to kind of peripherally live that life. But I discovered that I was not cut out for the FRG life. I kind of knew that anyways, but like found out very quickly, I was not cut out for the FRG life. That is not your lane, girl. Stay out of that lane. Not surprising. Stay out of that lane. um, Not your lane. It it was not. So I kind of had like one foot kind of dipped into the military pool because I still lived that life as a spouse. But I went through this death portion. I went through this mourning portion of like who I was and this purpose that I had. And did I have that purpose? And what I was very fortunate in my first internship when I went to my, when I was still on active duty, I went to my master's degree, I was kind of shoved into the therapy world. And so I started doing therapy, started working with trauma. And then I realized some we had PCS to Fort Drum and I was working in a community mental health facility, getting my second master's in clinical mental health counseling. And I realized like, I don't want to do this. I want to work with veterans. I want to work with veterans on the real shit that they go through, the real life issues that they have, because that is what I am going through. And that's what I want to do. And so I did community mental health for a while, um, focus on trauma, focus on addictions, focus on psychosis and bipolar disorder and all the things that like people get hospitalized for. And those are my people. And so when I went to private practice, we, we got orders to come here to Fort Belvoir and I'm um, in the Northern Virginia area. And I applied at a private practice and I told the owner, she said, well, you know, who's your population? I said, can you give me veterans? And she's like, I don't see why not. 
I said, no, 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 can you give me veterans like yes or no? <laughs> and she said, well, we can try. We've never had that. We've never had a veteran be a therapist for us. We've never had anybody with your level of trauma training work for me before. I will market for you and I will square you away. And she did. And she gave me everything I could have ever wanted. Our practice, my practice now, but the practice that I used to work at as well, had a contract with the DCBA to see veterans for community mental health. We were doing, for a short period of time, we were doing disability evaluations before the VA pulled our authorization to do that. I got to work with my brothers and sisters and that was everything to me. Um, and so I was able to go from life to death and then kind of slowly creep my way back into life. So I knew that when I was going to do my own thing, it was going to be for us. It was going to be for our community. I have military spouses and veterans. I have a former veteran. I have a veteran and a former police officer on my staff as one of my therapists. I am, I am hiring therapists. Well, not anymore. I'm full now, but I was hiring therapists who had that experience so that we can sit across from our brother or sister and say, I get you and I feel you. And I have done more work with those clients who are going, I don't know what kind of shoes to wear to my interview. Then I think I really have done the trauma work because that's something that's so real and so deep. And I can say, yeah, no, I get it. I've been there. I have this client right now who's in the process of retiring female veteran. And she's exactly where I am. She's like, I don't know what to wear. I don't know how to be soft. I don't know. And I'm like, who says you have to? And I think that's the other piece that I really came away from it. We are sheepdogs. We will always be sheepdogs. We could never be sheep. And as long as we don't become wolves, we're fine exactly the way that we are. And the sheep will never know what it's like to be one of us. We don't have to explain that to them. We just have to find other sheepdogs to say, that guy's really crazy. Did you hear the shit that he just said around the water cooler? Like if you can find your network, if you can find your, your, your group of sheepdogs that says, yeah, I get it. And I'm with you. I think that makes it just so much better to be a part of this. Cause you can, I'm never going to be a civilian. I will never be a civilian. And once I kind of accepted that and owned that, like relieved, I think a lot of the pressure for me. That might be the best damn analogy I've ever heard. Cause I, you know, I've thought about the wolves and the, but the sheepdog versus the sheep and the wolf. I think that pulls it all into play because it's like that. Like we're all sheepdogs. We're all looking for each other to help build a pack. Yep. Protect it. We have, we'll still protect the sheep, but we don't damn sure want to be the wolf. But yeah, I mean, that's an, an amazing analogy to where you take things because I honestly believe in my heart that the veteran community could so much better take care of each other than using outside sources. We yes. could pull our sources and we could almost be our own VA, so to speak, where we could yep. pull our sources and we could do it. We would just need some guidance and some people above us that could help, you know, that yep. there's a way because there's people out there like you that do the mental health parts. So we'd have that kind of stuff covered. We got people out there that will work in a different legal areas and all that. So we could cover a lot of things. We could create an instructional little world that just kind of encompasses all us, which, yep. you know, in the big scheme of things, because I had another conversation earlier about that whole thing about how military and their lack of transitioning this out like that. I mean, geez, if you really think about it, like you and your practice and what you're doing for veterans and what you're doing for that community, even that community you live in, because that's the thing I tell people. If we strengthen one veteran, it's like a throwing a rock in the pond, the ripples that go, because if that veteran gets healthier, this community gets better. And then yep. the community gets better and the things get better. So mm -hmm. it's, it's huge. And what you're doing is amazing. I've always had, a, I mean, like I told you, I've worked in mental health in the army for a long time. And I did a lot with the uh, psychology, psychiatry. I was in a research unit at Rare, at Walter Reed. And I know what the doctors go through to try to help. But I've also can tell you, since I've been out, I've been to see therapists. I've been to, I've been to retreats. I've been to groups. I've been to self-help, self-group. And none of it really worked for me until I finally found a retreat that actually did help. And it actually kind of changed my way of dealing with my PTSD and things. But I think that there's just, there's so many resources out there for all of us. Mm -hmm. And we just don't know how to get them all, where yeah. to find them all, how to process. I know like 
I found a new business they're called the Yellow Ribbon Network, and they do a lot with it's touching veterans that reach out. It actually finds the resources in their local area where they're at to help them with XYZ, yeah. which has been amazing because I have it on my nonprofit website too. So it allows me to say, hey, reach out, just follow, log into this thing. Da, da. They'll find somebody that's going to help you exact that exact issue, mental health or financial need or whatever. Mm-hmm. They'll that's find awesome. somebody. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, and that's so needed. You hit the nail on the head. We, if we can connect with each other, just that simple understanding of, I get what you went through because I went through it too. You know, me too. It's the two most powerful words, words in the English language. And I can't tell you how many clients who come sit across from me and they say, oh, you're a veteran? Oh, because that's the first, it's on my website. I'm very open about it. I have my gold spurs hanging on my wall over here. So I'm very, I'm, I'm open about my vet. I'm proud of my service, right? But if I get a veteran client, I will tell them I'm a veteran too. I am a combat veteran. I also have PTSD and here I am and I'm doing the damn thing and you can too. And I think it opens up so many doors because you feel felt by somebody. That I'm like, you know, I get it. You don't have to tell me about it. I know what that sound sounds like. I am literally, I could throw a stone and hit Quantico from where my office is right now. And when I tell you today, they were doing live fire, but they were doing big round live fire. And my windows in my house were rattling. I can't even imagine what was going on here. I want to be able to sit across from somebody and say, you know, that's Quantico. Let's take a breath. It scares me too. Let's get that's through that. My house, because I'm right outside of Fort Hood and my house, when the tanks and the cab guys are out there firing, the whole neighborhood shakes. My yeah. wife's like, what is that? I said, it's the cab. They're out there firing. Don't worry about it. It's okay. This, I have to go outside, take a deep breath. Uh, but we're all right because it just brings yeah. back memories. It brings back things yeah. I don't necessarily want to say, but I know what it is. I've been living here for 15 years, so I know what that is. I actually kind of got their, we got their schedule down at my house now. We kind of know when they're going to be out there doing stuff. Yeah, but, Quantico emails the schedule out. <laughs> yeah, they probably let you know, hey, we're going to be fine. Yeah. It's just, um, first of all, I want to tell you how proud I am of you as a veteran that you stepped up and, and made the effort to do that as a fellow veteran to know that there's people out there, there's veterans out there that are looking out for that purpose to bring us together, to make sure they understand that we're out there. I get soldiers, I get people that call me because my phone number, everybody got, everybody that lives around here at Fort Hood got my number. I get calls two o'clock in the morning sometimes just because they're in a bad place. They want to, I meet them somewhere and talk, not right now with the COVID thing, but the point is I'd meet them somewhere, sit down, have a cup of coffee, we'll talk. Yeah. No matter all, I'll talk to them on the phone for as long as I need to talk to. Yeah. Because they know I'm there if they need to reach out. They know I will take the time and I don't judge them. And that's the other thing too, because right. that's another thing too. I, I learned with a lot of my therapists in building up that, expectation when I was going through therapy was if I didn't believe that you weren't judging me, then you were never going to get my full thing. And I can tell usually within the first two or three appointments, whether or not this person was really judging me. You know, I get in some of the details of things happened to me as a medic and some of the things we saw in combat, some things that happened and some things we had to do on, you know, on a convoy when we get hit or we get, we get ambushed or whatever to see their reactions as a civilian therapist to not realize that that was normal for us. Yep. It wasn't abnormal. Like it's abnormal for you to listen to this, but it's not abnormal for me to have to go through it because I went right. through it on multiple deployments and did multiple times. Yep. And, and I tell them, cause I tell a lot of, cause I talk to a lot of therapists around here. Cause they got a lot of people call me cause I have, I have a therapist that comes here once twice a month to just do counseling for veterans here at my location at my nonprofit. So they don't have to go to a clinic somewhere and they'll come here and they sit in an office. I give them a space. And I've had, I've told them, I said, listen, the first thing you have to do is build credibility with these veterans because you're not a veteran. Yep. And the other thing is you can't look in your eyes like you're judging them. Yep. You have to look in your eyes like you're concerned about them, yep. but not judging them. Because if they feel right. they're judging them, they're going to shut down. And then they're you're gonna you, you yep. already lost them. Yep. So, but I do applaud what you do. I'm proud of the fact that you're a veteran and you're doing the things you're doing. It's, it's, it's very uh, refreshing. Because there are a lot of veterans out there too. That's the other part. Hopefully I'm going to get into that later on in other episodes. But there are veterans out there 
that take advantage of being veterans and they take advantage of a lot of those things. There's that 10%. Yep. Um, and those are, of course, the veterans that make us look bad because they're, yep. they're always ones looking for a discount or always ones looking for this. I think yep. somebody owes them something. Because one of my big speeches I give a lot of veterans when I talk to big groups of veterans at the VFWs or wherever is, listen, no one owes you anything except their gratitude. They don't owe you anything except to thank you for your service. After yep. that, you're even. Mm-hmm. And you made that choice. We all volunteered to go in. It's not like the Vietnam era where some got drafted and something, but all of us volunteered. We knew what we were getting into when we did it. So obligation-wise or whatever, they don't owe us that. They owe us a thank right. you because we did go into war. We did do something. A thank you, but a thank you is that simple. You're welcome. Right. We move on. But they right. don't owe me anything. Nope. You're not doing anything because of your service. Nope. The only thing I would tell you you do is if you got injured or whatever, then yes, you do some, some treatment and things like that. But the civilian population in, in, the, in the whole doesn't owe us anything other than a no. thank you. Yep. And I'm not one of those veterans either that wear like veteran gear everywhere. I'm, I'm proud of my service. I am very proud of my service, but I don't broadcast it to people I don't know. I don't yeah. wear hats that show my army stuff. I don't wear anything. And that's just me though, personally, because I'm very proud of my service, but I'm also humbled in my service because I'm more worried about the guys that are in now than I'm worried about me. I'm worried about their situation, what they could lead into with Syria and all the other crap that's going on in the mm-hmm. world. Yeah. They say, because I'm not there right. to train them or I'm not there to take them over there or I'm not. Right. So that's what I worry about because that's the real part of me that's a soldier that says, I got out right in the middle because I got out in 2010. I retired in 2010 after my sixth deployment. <laughs> but that's enough. But uh, like I tell my wife, I said, that's the reason why I run a nonprofit to help soldiers and veterans because I wanted to keep paying it forward and doing something we can do to help these families do better and not struggle as much or have, they know there's people here that'll reach out that they can reach out to. So right. organizations like your practice and the things you're doing are, are amazing. And I'm, 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 I just got to say, I mean, as another veteran, I'm proud of you as a veteran because, I mean, for you to step up and, and take it to that level where you weren't sure that's what you really want to do, but then you found a calling because of this. I mean, that's the point I love about a veteran. wasn't necessarily your first call, but then as you educated yourself and you move step forward, you're like, well, I could really make a difference now if I do this. And then you're doing it. So that, yeah. I'm, I'm just, I, I like to tell you, I'm proud of you. I think that it's Thank amazing you. that you guys are doing that stuff. And then your whole, because I, I looked at your website, checked out your, your whole staff looks like they're all in with what you're doing. So that's what's great yeah. is that when they yeah. people show up there, they know they're all in. So yep. it's an amazing thing. So I'm very, very proud of you. So Thank that you. being said, I'm going to tie this into, I'm going to give you a few minutes where you can just talk about your practice and the things you're doing. And if there's anything okay. we as a veteran community can do to help you, this is where I want you to get that ask out so that we can go okay. to your Facebook page or your website and do sign up and just let people know, whatever. But here you go. So go ahead, Christine. Let us know what we can do for you. All right. Thank you. So my practice's name is Got Your Six Counseling. I can't tell you how many times I have been asked, oh, what does that mean? And then I say, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I explain it. And they're like, oh my gosh, that's so cute. And I'm like, there's nothing cute about it. Stop it. But um, <laughs> great name. Man. Thank you. So, but that the name isn't just the name. It's what we are trying to embody. I have the backs of my staff. I have the backs of my clients um, to the extent that I can professionally. Right now, we are only doing mental health. So I have a part-time resident. Um, she's a veteran and a former police officer in New Jersey and Trenton, actually. So, I have a military spouse whose husband had orders here and then COVID happened and now he doesn't have orders here, but she is teleworking. So she's doing telehealth right nice. now um, for me. And then um, I have two students, one student who is a military spouse herself and she's going to start with me in the fall. I have a military veteran who did 27 years of active service with, no, I'm sorry, that's a lie, 21 years of active service with the Air Force. And she's coming on board with me. It was going to be this spring, but some stuff went on with school. So she's going to be starting with me in January. And there was a class that like her advisor forgot to tell her to take. And so she has to take that now, which is really frustrating for her. So I am, while I'm not opposed, I do have a civilian who works for me. He has no idea and understanding of this lifestyle. So I'm trying to nudge him gently in that direction. But 
but, uh, but we are by and large, we are military employed. I want to hire military, military spouses. That is our culture. That's who we're helping first responders. That's who, that's who we're helping. We have civilians clients who obviously take advantage of our services as well, but the primary focus is for right now it's mental health services for military veterans and first responders. I am in the process of hunting down a nurse practitioner or a PA or an MD who would like to come one or two days a week and prescribe meds. So if there's anybody out there that knows an NP, preferably an NP, I just like NPs, uh, although I won't ever turn down a psychiatrist or a PA, but uh, I do have an office for them. So like one or two days a week, we are paneled with all of the insurance companies to include TRICARE. And we also take Optum's community care network referrals from the VA. So if you are a veteran who's connected with the VA, you go to your primary care manager and let them know. Right now, we are, so we're in Virginia. We're right out, like right outside Quantico. So kind of in between Quantico and Belvoir. A lot of clients that I see will work at the Pentagon or work at Belvoir. So we're kind of right off right off of 95. So it's a really good location. But I'm also in the process of looking for like a dietitian or a nutritionist to come here one or two days a week. And that's the other thing that we don't do with ourselves very well. We don't take good care of ourselves. So getting kind of that holistic, like my my kind of like long-term plan is to make Got Your Six kind of a one-stop shop for overall wellness. Um, I would like to get a massage therapist in here. I'd love an acupuncturist. I'd love a chiropractor. But just somebody to come in one or two days a week to crack backs or put needles in ears or, or whatever so that we can, because the stuff that we go through, yes, we have gone through physical stuff, right? Ruck, ruck marches for days, but it's a physical impact on the body, but the emotional stuff that we deal with also puts a physical impact on the body. And until we can take care of our physical body, we're never going to be able to take care of our emotional well-being. So that is kind of the underlying crux. So it's not just coming here and get therapy for your brain. It's I'm working to grow this place. So it's the total package. So we just opened in January. I've been kind of behind the scenes working and building this all of last year, but kind of opened the doors officially January 6th and uh, then COVID hit. And so here we are in an office all by myself, (laughs) but we do do telehealth. Uh, I know, right? (laughs) We do do telehealth. I am licensed in New York and in Virginia. Um, Crystal, who is my full-time spouse, she is licensed in New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. So we can do telehealth in any of those states. So it's not just exclusive to Virginia. And even when we open back up again, um, we are already paneled in those states with the exception of Medicaid. I'm in the process of paneling with Medicaid with those states. But the VA will authorize telehealth community care in for us, even if you're in Tennessee or New Jersey or New York. And I'm contemplating my old supervisor wants me to get paneled in in Hawaii. So I'm tossing the idea around of getting licensed in Hawaii because I know that I know that there's a need out there. There's not very many therapists out there. So I know that there's not a need. Right. And especially from the veteran aspect, there's not enough of us veteran therapists anyways. So I um, just really want to make it kind of a one-stop wellness shop for veterans, first responders, military and their families. That is awesome, Christina. That is amazing. Thank so you. I'm excited for you. I know you got a you got a big, big plan, and that's great. Hopefully it, it falls yes. into place and slowly starts filling those gaps in for you. So I want to thank you for being on the podcast. Look forward thank to you. following up with you later on and see how you're doing and see how things have progressed. So thank you so much. I love that. Thank you, Sergeant. I appreciate it. All right, talk to you soon. Well, that's a wrap, everyone. Hope you all got something out of this podcast today. Please tell a battle buddy about us and stay tuned for our upcoming podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at www.veteransbereal.com. Support us because we got your back. Till next time, everyone, I'm out of here. Oh,